You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has me. Hi, I'm here with, not Yitzchok, but Mark, Yitzchok Kolakowski, but Mark Alib. Mark, Hi. it's always a pleasure and an honor uh, to talk movies with you again, we don't need much of an excuse, though. Me and you. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Mark, uh, we're talking here, of course. Uh, the the projectionist has uh Both of us are projecting tonight um, two old films, um, films you know, really darshaning about old movies. And uh, darshaning, I think, is key here uh, because not only are these films that um, are in a way, both of them have an aspect of spectacle and excitement to them, but they really, there's really a lot of ideas behind, I think, both of these films um, and film, and we're going to try to tie it together a little bit, and uh, I haven't seen the film that uh, that, that you're going to be talking about, but uh, it, it is a film that was interestingly made quite a few times, right? I mean, I they think said there are seven film versions of the story, six of them with the title of Four Feathers or The Four Feathers. There was a 1955 production called Storm Over the Nile that departed from the Four Feathers title, but <laughs> had the same story with the same... This one of them, I guess the 1939 version with Ralph Richardson um, and John Clements. Why don't you talk, tell us about this film and why you think it's significant and, and what we can get from it. Sure. You know, like we've already said, this film is based on a on a story, a, a 1902 adventure novel um, by a, a British author, A.E.W. Mason. And it tells the true life story of the modest rebellion or the modest revolt in Sudan in the 1880s. Um, the English uh, was a colonial power was an empire at the height of its empire and it tells a morality tale um against the backdrop of this true historical um event and series of events uh the protagonist is a fellow by the name of harry feversham and harry comes from a distinguished military family and he is also engaged to uh, a prominent uh, general's daughter, Ethne Eustace, and life is pretty good for Harry. Um, and then his regiment is called up to be sent to Egypt and then later the Sudan to put down this Mahdi rebellion. The, the Mahdi was uh, a fellow uh, Islamic general, uh, Muhammad Ahmed, who took on the, the title, the ceremonial and honorific title Mahdi, which means that the, the one who sees, and he, he sort of a messianic, almost a messianic character. And the day before Harry's regiment is set to um, sail for Egypt, he, um, he rejects his commission. He refuses his commission out of a bout of cowardice. And uh, I guess thinking that he has so much to lose with his fiancée still in England. And uh, with this act, this cowardly act, um, his his friends in the regiment, uh, there are several, but three of them 
um, Trench, uh, Castleton, and Willoughby, they they present to him in a box, in a little box, feathers, three feathers, and feathers, white feathers are the symbol of cowardice in this culture, in this martial culture of, of English manners and mores. And when his fiance, when Harry's fiance finds out that he's relinquished his commission, she too, she takes a plume, a white plume from her, um, from her head piece and presents it to him as the fourth feather. That's the fourth of the four feathers. And the regiment sets out and they're, different battles and depending on which film depiction you you tune into you can they're, they're actually different historical some more accurate some less accurate but the, the three friends are all captured um and harry essentially has a change of heart perhaps shamed by these four feathers and wanting to recover a sense of nobility and chivalry and and the, the gentlemanly ethic, that ethos. And he goes uh, disguised as an Arab and he rescues his three friends. He gets them out of the prison, this big prison that was in Khartoum, I believe. And one of his friends, um, Durance, becomes uh, injured um, in, in the 1939, which is, as you indicated, of Rainbow, it's really the 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 most successful of the versions and it's the most artistically acclaimed of, of these seven film versions in, in the 1939 version, um, Durance loses his sight um, from sunstroke in, in the 2002 version with Heath Ledger and Kate Hudson and Wes Bentley. Bentley plays Durance. He loses it. He, he comes near to a, a chart, uh, the, the charging of, of a, um, discharging of a rifle and he's too close and and it damages his eyes and he goes blind um but in in all the versions uh, durance um becomes engaged to ethne to the to harry's fiance previous fiance of course ethne breaks off the the engagement along with giving him that fourth feather um and then finally when everybody realizes that harry it was harry who had rescued them, and it was Harry that um, made all these exploits uh, behind the enemy lines. Um, Durant's very nobly pulls out of that relationship, and because he realizes that Ethne still loves uh, Harry, that he, there's anything in in Harry originally that he's against war in general. No, I mean he's just no, scared. He I just mean, doesn't. Like, the yeah, whole point Harry, is he just doesn't want to die. Yeah, Harry is trained his whole life for for battle and for this leadership role in this in this regiment and as i mentioned he's the son of a distinguished general himself and oh no this that he's not a conscientious objector as much as just someone who's afraid to to lose his life and to lose all of that he cherishes and loves um for fear of of death or, or injury or capture and and that and mark you know, that was pretty much the case i mean i mean we talk about the torah of course you know you know the torah allowing uh, someone to to leave the, the the field of battle um if if he did was if he understood that within him he had that cowardice streak or that streak of not being able to withstand battle 
but during the battle itself, we know that we sort of are in the same boat. We, we kill the people. We actually have people who stay in the back lines and don't allow uh, persons to run away from a battle. Um, and uh, we, we know that it isn't so much our hatred of cowards, isn't Mark, more than it is that if one goes, then you don't have an army. If, if, yeah, if you, a, if you, it's a prudential consideration, you know, more than a, um, a punishment for cowardice. Whereas right. I think in the English, in this tradition of, of chivalry and sort of the martial virtue, I think we are getting, you know, a, a deeper sense of, of the character flaw that, of cowardice, the character flaw that Harry, you know, initially possesses. And he, of course, does a, a, a major turnaround and risks his life and goes behind enemy lines, arguably, in, you know, jeopardizing his own life in, in a more uh, dramatic way than had he just stayed with his regiment Um, and and, and is it because you think does the film indicate because he was shamed that it was the shame of being called a coward the film doesn't do a great job of of characterizing that turn that that real change of heart it's it, it seems like it's a realization that he's let down you know his his closest friends and and loved ones and and that this this has brought some shame and uh he can't live with that and he realizes that it's it's harder to live with the shame than with the security and safety of of being a deserter and and and, and so therefore um he he does something as you say which is actually a lot more brave and dangerous yeah. in terms of doing that and and and, and does does the film you know, it, it, obviously there is some tragedy involved. You're saying the fellow, uh, one of his friends, becomes blind, um, yeah. And, yeah. And, You're and, and and you feel the film is stressing, especially in 1939. I mean, when this film came out, uh, it was meant to push. Sure, the English. war effort. Yes, this is meant to, um, you know, uh, firm up people's resolve to to battle, you know, one's enemy and to battle you know, what is seen as a threat to civilization. I mean, the Mahdi in their own feverish and, and you know, they're also called the dervishes, uh, you know, they, they, they represent a, a real affront to English, you know, English civilization and English society. And, uh, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a big leap to see, you know, the threat of Nazism and uh, another form of, of a totalitarianism of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being a threat to the English way of life, and and this film is is sort of must, mustering people's courage to to fight, you know, the enemy nobly and and with resolve. Did, um, did, did you I feel think that, that's part did, of that the backdrop or the subtext? Did, did, I mean, you know, look, Ralph Richardson is um, obviously was one of the great you know, three major uh, British actors. Uh, Three giant actors: Lawrence Olivier, John, Sir John Gielgud, and Ralph Richardson. Um, you know, Alec Guinness, of course, is from the generation after that. Yeah. Did you did you find that the performances were stirring and important? Did you feel caught up in them? You know, I caught. I felt more caught up in the story than in the characterization than than the acting per se. I, I think the thematics of, of bravery and courage and and the the fear of shame or the fear of of losing one's standing in in polite society um not just you know on a superficial level of of etiquette but on a deeper level of character and 
what what it means to be a man, what it means to be courageous, what it means to have uh, esprit de corps. Um, the characterization in the, in the film is not is not terribly deep. Um, I think the story the story and the thematics are what carry it, and that's part of the reason why it's been remade. I wonder, Mark, you know, just you know, speaking you know, as an observer of where we are. Um, you say Heath Ledger was in the latest one. Yeah, he was. Yeah, that Heath was, Ledger was uh, the, the. That was two thousand. Harry Burbisham in two thousand and two. Right. It seems to me, and again, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here because I haven't seen the film and I haven't seen any of the versions really. Although I probably saw clips of it, uh, you know, throughout my life, that maybe today this film wouldn't maybe ring a bell. Maybe the the film today, you know, in the twenty years since the Heath Ledger version, you know, I, I think there would have been sort of like a, you know the idea of of being a coward and gaining your courage it sounds too individualistic it sounds like maybe right wing you know it sounds like something that might not fly in today's you know in in today's sort of woke invested hollywood i don't know you could already tell from some of the changes the artistic and thematic changes in the 2002 version where there's a lot of self-conscious deliberation about colonialism. There's the sense that a clash of cultures where the the Western influence is, is recognizing somewhat belatedly that there is value in, in the courage of, in the, in the civilization and the culture of the more, you know, ostensibly primitive, right. um, you know, Dervishes, uh, the wonderful actor um, Tijimun Hunsu. You know he was in Amistad. And sure, I know. Yes, yeah. So he plays the a Sudanese uh, ex Dervish who helps um, Heath Ledger's character, the Harry Feversham character, infiltrate the Mahdi's camp. And so he, you know, he's he's not a character that is developed in the way. Uh, we see in the 2002 film and in, in, in any of the previous versions and because you know, the, I understand the of the times and the, you know trying to be more you know respectful and inclusive sure right but but even even the central theme of 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 a person not wanting to go to war and is that the sign of not being a man and that's the sign of really repudiating the purpose of what a person should be especially if they're committed to war um i don't know if those those messages you know, sound as strong today as, as they, as they did. I know they don't. And, uh, I think my, I have my ear to the ground well enough to know that. Sure. And, but the, the, all those, all those virtues of, of chivalry and courage, bravery, um, you know, country for God and country, these are rather cynically deconstructed today. And they're not given, you know, anywhere near the centrality as, as they as they were in, uh-huh. you know, in the times, even in sure. the most, you know, earlier versions in this, you know, 1978 version, and it's still taken seriously. I mean, to be fair, the 2002 version is not a total, you know, hatchet job. It's, it, it does adapt and, and make some changes to be more congenial to the times. But I think the story still stands on its own as a story of courage and, and, and bravery and, you know, the question of one's homeland or one's, nation one's empire that that already is is more complex and mm-hmm. admits of different variations uh, i have to say film. you know the, the director of the film is Zoltan Kordan, um 
it was a it was a Hungarian refugee. I mean, the film was made. Yeah. I, I think it was made on in sound stages here in the U.S. Right? It wasn't. And yeah, I think the 1939 film. There were some. There were some location. There were some shots on location in Africa. It, it was. It, and it was also the first of these seven versions that were, was filmed in color. It is rather lavish looking and, and beautiful looking. Um, most of it is on sound, sound stages, but there there are a number of of actual you know shots, location shots. Mm-hmm. But but you weren't so super impressed by by, no. by Corden's <laughs> direction. It wasn't like what it was. It wasn't John Ford. It wasn't Hitchcock. It wasn't. Uh, it wasn't Spartacus. <laughs> yeah, photography sure. and what people were able to do. I think we marvel at the directors like Hitch and like John Ford and others who, in, in sort of even in that primitive time. Uh, even D.W. Griffiths in some way that were able to come up with these incredible images, um, you know, despite the limitations of the camera, what people were able to do with matte paintings and people were able to do with miniatures and and be able to really bring people into a, a different world. Um, the, the film I'm talking about is actually a film that uh, also uses, you can tell, you know, the, the use of the miniatures and the use of of, of a lot of dark, photography to suggest um what was really going on and this is a a film that was based on one of the most popular um novels of the early part of the 20th century uh, written by jack london um the seawolf and this was a a a 19 the version i'm i would like to recommend people to 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 see and perhaps think about is the 1941 version uh, also made uh, as America was about to step into war uh, and was you know, obviously something that I think has to be seen in light of the theology or the, I don't know if theology is the right word, but the, the, the ideas that were being prevalent um, in Europe at the time. Uh, and this is a film that uh, Jack London, uh, based on Jack London's novel, and Jack London's novel was altered quite a bit uh, for the screen. Um, the, the novel is really a exploration of, of London's, of, uh, of Nietzsche's The Superman. It's really an explanation, it's a exploration of, is it true that man has become, in the latter part of the 19th century, uh, pampered, effeminate, um, unable to really work on on his own, um, that the industrial revolution, although not because of the Marxist aspect of, 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 of putting so much wealth in the hands of the few, but because of uh, how the benefits of technology and other things and the development of the belle lettres and, and, and many of the, the arts and sciences have basically emasculated uh, men and have caused caused them to become weak, that they don't know what it means to work for their own daily bread. Um, they depend on just others doing things for them, and therefore, although they can they can write and speculate and 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 and, 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 and author essays on subjects that sound very profound, but really they are. I wouldn't call them cowards, but they are not true human beings. They are people who aren't really in control. Nietzsche would call them cowards at, at some level. Yes. He'd call them the last men. 
sort of yeah. the last vestige of mankind, a, a poor, very venal, um, petty variety of man. So, which so what 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 London did was he brought a, an exemplar of a sophisticated, intelligent version of that man, uh, who is uh, Humphrey Van Weyden, and he has him stranded in the ocean and picked up by Wolf Larsen, who is a self-taught Superman, who is physically powerful, who runs his ship uh, and the grotesque creatures who are his sailors and harpoonists on the ship um, uh, with a dictatorial sense, with a, a sense of dismissiveness, um, with a power and violence. And what the, the, the novel is really about, it's written from the perspective of Humphrey, and Humphrey ends up having to, as a, as a castaway who ends up being picked up by Larson and his sailors, he has to work on the ship and discover that he can do things on his own. And Larson and he engage throughout the novel in a number of philosophic discussions. He discovers that the captain has a great library and that has Darwin and Nietzsche and other uh, philosophers and thinkers. And without being too obvious, the, the, they actually debate these points. Um, and Larson is a brute. Larson is, 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 is incredibly uh, vicious and cruel. But on the other hand, he is obviously the most intelligent character in the novel his and 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 london describes the learned brute yes london describes the living power that he has as if it's something greater even than his own strength the his neshama his mahus and when right. we know that nietzsche did speak in ways that oh, yeah. were that were quite mystical when he talked sure. about the life force and and part of what the novel about is is is, is when these two meet can is there do they change now that that is really the 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 gut of the novel there's also minor characters and there's a, a woman character um and it, it's clear that by the end of the novel um van wyden has changed himself because of his experience he, it is an ugly horrible experience but he has become stronger he has become mm-hmm. different and he thinks about things differently, and he becomes able to love a woman in a way that he wasn't able to do beforehand. Um, now, the screenwriters, for some reason, and, and you know, again, the the people involved in the movie, um, you know, he had Michael Cortez, who was the great director of Casablanca and other films, a Jewish Hungarian um, refugee as well, um, and um, Robert Rawson rewrote the uh the book in order to give another jewish actor along evergy robinson of course uh is the it, it plays uh wolf larson and he doesn't really have the physical gifts to, right. I mean, you can't really believe i mean he's a small little guy you know yeah. it, it's hard to believe that he is so strong and powerful um and he tries um a character that you heard uh, you might have heard us talk about on one of our episodes alexander knox who played woodrow wilson in a film in 1944 uh plays van wyden if you watch the movie you'll see mark that that 
it starts, the three names are Edward G. Robinson, Ida Lupino, and John Garfield. Mm. And then the next uh, the next screen title, which comes up afterwards, is Alex, also starring Alexander Knox, who is really the star of the book. Right. So th- what they did in the movie, because you know they they actually downplayed uh, Humphrey's role, although they give you know, Knox has a, a number of of great lines, but they actually take Alexander Knox's uh, as Humphrey Van Wyden. They, as I said, they downplay the real character from the book, and they give it to this the George Leach character, which is John Garfield. Now, John mm-hmm. Garfield, as you know, uh, was was considered, uh, you know, a, 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 a Bogart-like leading man, uh, a Jewish fellow who died much too young, but he dominated the screen when he was there. And um, they took a minor, sort of a minor character from the book. Uh, they aged him and they sort of set a lot of the perspective of the movie from the John Garfield character, which in the book, of course, didn't happen. And I think this, in many ways, takes away from the central dynamic of what the of what the book was about. But I mean, I wonder, could it have ever even have been brought to the screen in a way in 90 minutes or two hours in a way that does justice to it? You know, Mark, we, we are spoiled today. Yeah. We are spoiled because we are used to prestige TV, which can take a, a, a very intellectually important book like The Seawolf and actually take 10 episodes and be able, over the course of those right. episodes, to be able to really fully bring out the novel. Um, you know, I, I didn't read the, the source material of Game of Thrones, but, but obviously, uh, before television, prestige TV, this, it, the films yeah, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't have been sure. made. Right. And 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 therefore, a lot of the subtleties and strengths of care of the character arcs in many of these films that were based on important works of fiction were basically eviscerated. Yeah, they're truncated. They're they're dumbed down. They're they're not nearly as as sophisticated or, uh, you know, well portrayed. Yeah. And 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 of course, another thing, you know, the Maude Brewster character, um, you know, Ida Lupino had had really has. She's a very interesting uh, woman in Hollywood because not only was she sort of like known as like a doll of an actress, she wasn't particularly. She wasn't like a Rita Hayworth type of startling beauty, but she had a certain presence. And she later became one of the few successful female Hollywood directors. Hmm. Uh, and in the 40s and even in the 50s, she had a, a, a tremendous intelligence and capability. So they 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 actually turn. Um, the, the Ida Lupino and John Garfield character into these two runaways who end up on the ship and both of them are escaping a horrible past. Uh, what, what the film ends up doing is, is basically a cul-de-sac sort of like, a, I'm not sure what you would call it, a Mexican standoff between Humphrey Van Wyden, Alexander Knox and Edward G. Robinson, Humphrey Van Wyden and Wolf Larson. And, and they sort of like end up neutralizing each other um, and the two um, jailbirds end up towards the end of the film, finally escaping uh, <laughs> and maybe discovering a possible better life for themselves. And the film sort of like ends on that uh, on that note. In the meantime, though, there's another character that they um, that they created for the film, which I, I don't remember from the book, uh, the doctor on the on the boat. And it's played by a great character actor, Gene Lockhart. Um, and it is, 
what the person tries to salvage some dignity. He's a he's an obvious drunk who can't use his hands uh, because he's just he's, all he wants to do is drink and and he's not capable. But he had a history of somewhat of being a great physician at one time, and somehow he's able to save this girl from the effects of the drowning that she that happened when the when the original ship capsized that brought both of them up onto the ship um and when he's able to save her he is able to get his dignity back and he comes back onto the uh onto the the, the poop deck so to speak wearing uh, one of his old uh robes and and, 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 and regal clothing and ex- demanding some respect and of course um, Larson won't give it to him because obviously the respect uh, is another anti. And again, here I think it's true. Although I think the character was created for the 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 film, I think this is something that Nietzsche also despised, which is these honorifics and titles that we feel everyone has to push for. I need my dignity. I want my respect. That's how I. That's how I. Uh, thrive as a human being and it's it's through that type of dignity that i expect others to give me uh that i that i vindicate myself as a person and and what larson does and is basically uh uh you know uh, ridicule him and 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 push him to suicide it's a very powerful uh, uh part of the film um but you know, again, I, I thought it was probably true to, I think Nietzsche would have agreed that this was something that, uh, uh, that we are, society has, has, has become too enamored of, um, of, uh, of people fighting for their, their dignity as based on their education and what they deserve. I mean, dignity in a non-institutional way, in other words, finding one's own creative um, excellence, finding one's own um, comparative ad- advantage over others, finding not just one's voice, but one's ability to change the civilization around him or her. I mean, that's what you know Nietzsche's Superman. It's not. It's not only a political, or it's not merely a political category. It's probably mostly non political and there are great debates over Nietzsche's legacy and its relationship to Nazism and you know many many scholars are very eager to point out that the category of, of the Superman is is really more of a literary or creative category less of a political one um, so you know Jack London in many ways popularizes these themes of Nietzsche and makes them you know, more accessible to certainly an, an American audience. And, and there is that sense of the frontier, that sense of the, the West, the, the sense of Alaska, the sense of the wild that very much... Um, Animated a lot of his, a lot of his yeah. other fiction. Yes, and, and it's very much in keeping with this sense of the, the Nietzschean Superman who is trying to overcome conventional values and conventional systems of, of thought and, and morality um, to make way to pave, pave a path to a, a new a transvaluation of, of, of all values. 
because uh, because so, he yeah so because and so therefore you know again it is it's fascinating because I think London was of somewhat of two minds because we we sort of despise. And in the film, too, we despise the Edward G. Robinson character, although, you know, his acting and what he says is is so telling and so important and makes us think, um, you know, there is a servile character played by the great Barry Fitzgerald, um, who is, uh, <laughs> um, does a, you know, he sort of eats, he, he sort of eats the scenery consistently, but he sort of plays, I, I think, the role of of, of of something that Nietzsche hated, which was, you know, that that there are people who just live off the strength of others, who you know we would call in yeshiva the TLers, right, the ones who who are just uh, you know not in any way changing themselves, but being able to sort of read almost uh, with uh, with uh, you know with preternatural uh, ability you know, what the wave is and who's in charge. And, um, you know, the, the cookie character, uh, the, the cook is, is that character. It's, it turns out that, um, he, he, he betrays, um, everyone. And I don't know if Nietzsche thought that, but I, I, I get the sense that in, in, in the world of the 19th century, um, it's in the power structure that existed, it sort of lent itself to these scoundrels, to like to basically you know <laughs> operate uh because there was such admired people like napoleon and julius caesar and um you know machiavelli he he he, he admired those intellects or those men or women of power that were able to change the culture that changed the civilization so he saw the 19th century with liberalism and democracy as, as sort of steps backwards for for the cultivation of this type of personality, this and, personality and, that wouldn't be beholden to the masses. And therefore, the, the people who were the power brokers uh, were corrupt, and the people that the, yeah. the strap hangers were also really sharing that corruption. So, you know, the you know London's. This London's microcosm of a world, this ghost ship, which again, you know, is sort of like the soul in some ways, right? The mm-hmm. ghost, um, you know, I think it's 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 extremely important symbolic. I, I guess you know, I had read the book when I was was quite young, and I've actually, as an English teacher in high schools, uh, I have promoted it as something which I thought you know, even yeshiva students could get a lot of. And, and, and seeing the film, I tell you, Mark, was somewhat disappointing. Um, and, 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 and it really brings back, I don't know, you know, The Four Feathers was based on a, uh, I guess, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an adventure story that was interesting. But I think it's, it's cinematic life is where the story is going to thrive. I, I think there's a sort of an imbalance. You know, it's, it's sort of difficult. Maybe Harry Potter, the Harry Potter films, were able to do this and I, again I, I didn't really see anything except the first one which I took my kids to but I think when you do have a great a, a work that has so much impact on the society I think you know films have a hard time living up to it and and many times because of what's expected from the audience if the film is is, is well if the, the source is well known they end up either ladening the film with too much or or end up 
you know, eviscerating important parts of it. And then, and, and, and the film ends up really sort of like a, as a shambles. The, I, I would like to say that the Seawolf is an exciting film and there are some great action scenes and there are some interesting characterizations. And I think the film deserves to be seen. I, I, I just, unfortunately, um, it, it fails to, to, to really bring to the fore the essential issue that I think London wanted. And I think one of the reasons, not only the, the lack of time, because it, was, it, can, it couldn't be anything more than two hours, but I think another reason is, is because I think in 1941, they wanted to demonize the Nietzschean theories because those were being... Yeah, they associated it with Nazis. Hitler, right. Yeah. And, and I think, therefore, they needed to then a sort of um, uh, needed to attack anything you know that was that was redolent of yeah. of a Nazi theology. And, 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 well, I think a good a good contemporary film that has Nietzschean elements and is I think faithful and improves upon perhaps the written version is Fight Club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a, a really um, very Nietzschean film and, and a very visual depiction of, of what what the life of the Superman, you know, potentially could be one version of it. No, no, I, more I, political no, version. no, no, I, Fight Club, obviously, listen, you know, part of it is, is, is what David Fincher's wizardry really in that film. Um, and it is... Uh, you know, you're right. The original, the, the novel, I think, was by Chuck uh, Palancook. Yeah. Uh, if I'm saying his name right, Chuck Palancook. Um, it, it, it was a, a novel that that people found interesting, but I think uh, the film really, through its you know technical wizardry and in character, represents the the sort of the Superman that Edward yes. Norton wants to be. Yes. And um, it's Freudian and Nietzschean both. <laughs> at the same time but uh, you know, again I, I i would i would again question as i mentioned to you about four feathers i wondered i, I think we're we're in a as, as as great as the the reach sometimes seems to be of, of what hollywood can do whether it's in film or in prestige tv something tells me that fight club would not resonate um, today as strongly as it did when it came out, it seems to I think people would see it as 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 male toxicity to the extreme um, and, and because I think it, it you know as much as we sort of tisk tisk on that character in terms of what he becomes, um, I think there's a lot of people out there who really love the idea of fight club, and I think it spawned other fight clubs. Even though this was like a fictional idea that Chuck Planka came up with, I'm pretty sure, Mark, that the film sort of spawned other fight clubs where people, like you know, would just strip down and, and start hammering each other. Um, and I, I think that is something that today would be um, rightly condemned for its violence. But I think the spirit of discovering what a true man is. I think, I mean, that is something that I think has been attacked over and over um, as something that that's what's been wrong. <laughs> that's what's that's what's been wrong with 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 America is these these people coming to you know, 
discover this this true aggressive self that really doesn't necessarily compromise and tries to get that self-actualization. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I would say that both of these, you know, whether it's Fight Club, you know, or you know, the Sea Wolf. I mean, I think the Sea Wolf is unfortunately too late in in its time to to be remade. I would say, you know, a film, you know, just to end on this, if people are looking for a more modern film that sort of puts you out at sea with a captain, um, I, I really loved, and I took my kids to it, um, is The Master and Commander. Oh, yes, that's, that's a great film. That's a film that I think echoes some of the themes of The Four Feathers in, in a more constructive, positive way that did resonate with an audience and artistically the film was beautiful and authentic and, and recognizable. And I think that that did touch on some of these themes of chivalry and, and excellence. And, I think and that's I th a great film. I think especially um, what it, it was able to meld with, um, you know, you know, the, you know, the, with chivalry or what it meant to be, you know, you know obviously the, the Russell Crowe character, Captain Jack Aubrey, what it was able to actually do so wonderfully was instead of, you know, putting, you know, like Humphrey Van Wyden and Wolf Larsen as antagonists who sort of have to like kill each other in a way before each one, um, it actually had a yin and a yang of, yeah. of, of, of Jack Aubrey and, and, yeah. and the doctor and Paul yeah. Bettany. You yeah. were actually able to see that like courage and 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 stridency and 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 wanting to discover and discover and find out and to be victorious could actually be a a a launch pad for scientific discovery and understanding and how they could both really you know somehow coexist and being supported a strong super guy you know running the ship was able to support a project right. like Right. Discovering all those items and all those things that they yeah. discovered. So, so I think, you know, Master and Commander is, and it's too, it really it was terrible that, that that was, they never uh, had a follow up to that film. Right. It could have been really a, a, a wonderful series. I think it was, I'm not sure why it foundered on the rocks, but it was, um, in a way, I think, <laughs> I guess, I guess it sort of like distills many of the four feathers and the sea yeah. and other things that yeah. we we're talking about. Yeah. All right, Mark, listen, I wish you all the best. We'll catch you hopefully in about a month from now. Maybe you'll come back to us and uh, we'll talk about some other films. I've actually... Uh... Anytime, anytime. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye. As I said, watch your way on the way out. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.